you are listening to the Church Theology Podcast, a podcast on the church, for the church. My name is Kirk Miller, and this morning we are going to be going through Revelation 15, verse 5 to 16, 21, the bowl judgments. Um, I'm flying solo this morning as Dan is on vacation. Um, In addition, I'll be gone next week, speaking up at a camp all next week. And so um, I'm recording this sort of in between sermons. So uh, this past Sunday, I preached part one of this passage, and this coming Sunday, I'll preach part two. Um, and so, but, but because I'm going to be gone next week, um, I can't record the podcast kind of after the fact like we normally do. I'm going to kind of record it in between uh, these two sermons. And so that said, there is more that will be unpacked this coming Sunday and Sunday's upcoming sermon part two. And so today what we'll be doing is um, we'll just kind of go section by section through the passage though and make observations. I'm going to try to explain things that um, maybe haven't found their way into uh, one of the sermons. There's always much more in a passage that can be said that could be said than will make its way into the sermon for the purpose of kind of trying to provide a tight unified sermon that highlights the the main emphasis of of a passage. There's always tons more rich stuff going on in a passage than you can get to. So hopefully these podcasts, and this one in particular, can serve uh, to spend some time in those other things that maybe don't always make their way in. And so again, we'll work our way paragraph by paragraph through the passage and and kind of point out those things. And we'll we'll skip over things that, of course, um, generally, we'll skip over a lot of stuff that has been mentioned in a past sermon uh, this past Sunday, or I know will be mentioned, I know something I plan to touch on in this coming Sunday. So some selectivity as we do that. Um, just by way of review, the the main message, um, the message, kind of the we might say the main point, so to say, of this passage, what this passage is communicating, um, if you remember, is that God's wrath, his unbridled, unrestrained wrath is now being shown to to be poured out on um, well as a righteous vengeance particularly and for two reasons on account of two things the first is uh, the oppression of his people so God's wrath is being poured out as a righteous vengeance on account of the oppression of his people um, and that's really the emphasis that we focused on this past Sunday in the part one uh, the part one sermon. We see that, for example, in 16 verse 6, where uh, they um, have shed the blood of the saints, the ESV says, or it, literally it's they have poured out the blood of the saints. And so those who have poured out the blood of the saints, God's people, are having the bowls poured out, same word, on them. And so this is retribution um, of those who have persecuted God's people, now they are facing the judgment of God. And so in verse 7, the place of the altar, the place of the martyrs, cries out in agreement, yes, Lord, just and true are your judgments. Um, and so we see that retribution, the vengeance, righteous vengeance on behalf of God's oppressed people. The second uh, theme, though, of of going back to kind of rearticulating the main point here would be that God's wrath is being poured out as a righteous vengeance first on those who oppress his people. But secondly, and this will be the focus of this coming Sunday sermon, secondly, on account of humanity's persistent rebellion and unrepentance. So God is avenging those who simply 
um, blaspheme his name, those who spit in his face, so to say, those who reject his law and his sovereignty. And so that's really the second theme. Um, Those are sort of the two pronged reasons why God is bringing a righteous vengeance according to this passage. And again, the second one we'll focus on this Sunday. So with that said, let's go through the passage section by section, and I'll try to provide some uh, interpretive information um, that is helpful for kind of getting a handle on this entire passage towards the end of that main uh, point that we just articulated. And I actually want to start backing up into 15 verse 1. Okay, so this is actually going back into the previous section. You remember the previous section was the seven, uh, we call it like the seven signs. Um, and it because just like in other sections, you have the seven seals, the seven trumpets. Um, here you have seven and I saw statements. And so this is the section 1119 through 154. So really the bulk of 12, 14, and then kind of getting into halfway through 15. And in the sixth of these and I saw, there's seven of these and I saw, so filling out the completion idea. The sixth of these in 15.1 is, then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And so a couple just observations here is that we see they're called the last. Now, as we as we've observed, these cycles in Revelation are really meant to be seen parallel to each other. So not like a sequence of first the seal judgments are going to occur at some point in history, then the trumpets and then the bulls. But really, um, they are they all kind of get mapped on top of each other. They're all kind of recycling the same course of history from a different perspective. And so when he calls these things the last, they're not the last in terms of a chronological sequence, but you might say they're the last in terms of the last vision that he saw. This is the last set of judgments in terms of the last vision of a set of judgments that he saw, or from a literary perspective in terms of the book being a piece of writing. They're the last in this uh, piece of literature. And of course, there are differences among all these sets of judgment. Um, in this one in particular, in this one in particular, we kind of get a full throttle expression of God's judgment. And so there is some literary amplification. Things get kind of heated up and, 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 and intensified as the book goes on um, to kind of communicate something theologically. In, in previous judgments, like the trumpets, for example, we saw that God's judgments on humanity can serve to send a warning of the ultimate judgment to come. Well, in the bowls, um, there's no sort of holding back anymore in the judgments. God is full throttle, unbridled, pouring out his wrath, which teaches us as well that there will come a day when God's wrath will be fully um, dealt out. Now here, um, these judgments are called the seven plagues. Elsewhere in this section, they will be called either the seven plagues, which of course is reminiscent of the Exodus, Um, Just like in the trumpet judgments, we have these allusions in both these sets of judgment to the Exodus, which really fits the theme of these passages. So in this passage in particular, um, we have, as we saw, the vengeance of God's oppressed people, just like in the historical situation of the Exodus, um, you know, Old Testament Exodus, God is redeeming the Hebrews out of the oppression of Egyptian slavery. 
Um, and likewise, when God is judging the Egyptians, he is judging them for their idolatry and uh, their their sinful wickedness. Likewise here, God is, as he's providing an exodus for his oppressed people in this passage, he is also judging the wickedness of humanity. So it fits the, the two-pronged kind of emphasis of this passage where God is bringing vengeance on behalf of his oppressed people and on account of sinful humanity's persistent unrepentance. And so just as Pharaoh refused to repent and it says that God hardened his heart or elsewhere that he hardened his own heart, so here in this passage we get the repetition of humanity refusing to repent. Twice it says, I believe it's in the fourth and the fifth bowls, twice it says that humanity did not repent. And so, anyways, kind of circling back, um, these are called the plagues. Elsewhere, they're also called the bowls. So those two kind of terms or labels will be used interchangeably. And again, bowls here is, as we looked at in the past sermon, is sort of conveying this idea of the prayers of God's people are filling the bowls like an incense that goes up to God's nostrils and is a pleasing aroma. The prayers of God's people are something he delights in and delights to answer. And those prayers are converted into judgment. Now, again, we're still in 15.1. This is actually in the and I saw section, the sign section. And he just briefly, they just briefly get mentioned here. There's not much of an explanation of what these bowl judgments, these seven plagues are. But when we get to 15.5 um, into 16.21, now we're going to kind of get the expanded version of this judgment um, where it's going to get blown up and we're going to get to, we're going to kind of get to zoom in and see what is all happening here even as it was just kind of mentioned in 15.1. And this is something we see commonly throughout the book where something kind of just gets briefly mentioned. So like, for example, in chapter 11, the beast is conquering or killing the two witnesses representing the church. And it just mentions the beast. I believe that's the first time the beast is mentioned in the book. It doesn't explain what the beast is. If you were reading the book for the first time, you'd be kind of wondering what that was all about. Well, come along to chapter 13. Now you're going to get a blown up profile of who this beast actually is. We see the same thing with the harlot. The harlot just gets briefly mentioned. Um, and eventually we're going to see a blown up profile of the harlot in chapter 17, etc. So here, 15.1, these seven bowls have just kind of been mentioned sort of at the, they're kind of associated with the end time realities, what's, what awaits at the very end. Um, in the previous section, at the end of chapter 14 into 15, those are kind of dealing with the kind of future hope, the future judgment that awaits. And now, 15.5 to 16.21 is going to blow up that vision and really give us a detailed explanation of what that was all about. All right, so now let's get into our passage for today, which is specifically 15.5 to 16.21, and we're going to read the first paragraph, 15.5 to 8. Uh, the the remaining portion of chapter 15. So it begins, After this I looked, and so here we have a new vision. John is seeing something new. And the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. Or literally, this is the temple of the tabernacle of witness. So the word sanctuary here is the word tabernacle as it's translated elsewhere. It would normally be tabernacle or temple. I'm not entirely sure why the ESV is translating it here as sanctuary. Uh, and tent of witness, again, tent there is actually the word for tabernacle. I think the idea here is that the tabernacle, if you remember, was sort of a tent-like structure that functioned as the temple before a uh, physical building of a temple was built. 
So the tabernacle was like kind of the pre-temple in terms of a tent initially. And so the idea here is uh, the, the temple, which is the tent of witness. And so he's seen sort of the, uh, the this heavenly temple slash tabernacle of witness. Um, and um, remember, as Hebrews says, the earthly tabernacle, the earthly temple and such is really just meant to be a picture of the heavenly one. And so that's a similar idea going on here. What he's seen is the is really the heavenly temple slash tabernacle. Um, and out of this sanctuary, this temple, literally, came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed with pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And so these angels that are holding the uh, the the plagues, or uh, eventually they'll have the bowls, we'll see, these are proceeding from the temple. In other words, God is the one issuing forth this judgment. They're coming from his presence with the judgment. And they're clothed with pure bright linen, golden sashes. This is a very similar description to the Son of Man in chapter 1, verse 13, this picture of Jesus um, clothed very similarly. So the idea is is likely that they're meant to be closely associated with Jesus, that these are representatives of Jesus in, in the sake of the kind of for the symbolism, they're dressed in a very similar way. Verse 7, and so one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And God living forever and ever here indicating likely, you know, he has he has control over all of history. As the one who has control over all of history, he can direct where history is going, specifically in terms of issuing forth these judgments that bring his purposes to completion, his plan of redemption and judgment. Verse 8, And the sanctuary, the temple, was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. And so really all in all, we get this picture of uh, this temple and tabernacle symbolism and God's unbearable uh, holy presence before a sinful humanity. We get this picture of the Shekinah glory, the glory and the smoke filling the temple and the judgments are proceeding from his holy presence. Uh, The angels are coming from the temple with these plagues. And so um, we're going to say more about that this Sunday, but we'll just leave that there for now. Um, one other uh, one other observation, though, is that we see these angels then kind of functioning like they're kind of cast in the role of a priest in a way. They're operating from within the temple uh, area. They're coming from the, the, the tabernacle. And they have these bowls, which as we've seen elsewhere, they're giving these bowls, which as we've seen elsewhere are uh, censers that have incense, which is again, tabernacle temple imagery that would be offered up to God. And these represent the prayers of God's people. As we saw later in the, in this section in chapter seven, we're going to get mention of an altar again. And so more temple imagery, but then as these priests are then coming from the temple, they're within the temple, pouring out the incense. Um, it's sort of like a, the judgments then as they pour out these judgments, it's sort of cast in like this priestly uh, function of God's prayers uh, or the people of God, those prayers of God's people rising before God and he answering them from his holy temple. All right, so we continue now in 16.1, <clears throat> which is really just introducing now these um, the seven pouring out of the bowls. 
So in 16.1, it says, then I heard. So he, he looked and he saw, and now he's hearing something. Now he's hearing a loud voice from the temple. Uh, this is elsewhere in the book of Revelation. This seems to be uh, God's voice that comes from the temple when it's a loud voice like this. Also elsewhere, it talks about the loud voice from the throne, the throne located in the temple. So God is instructing, God is decreeing now, telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. These bowls then, um, again, as they're, the contents of these bowls being the wrath of God, so as they're poured out, God's wrath, the image is that God's wrath is being executed. His wrath is being dumped out, drenching humanity with his with his fury. And the the next sections here, or the, the first through the seventh angel pouring out the first through the seventh bowl, are really then going to be pictures of what it looks like when humanity experiences that wrath. All right, so 16.2, so the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth. And as we're going to see, uh, similar to the, the trumpets, um, so just like the seal and the trumpets, the as we mentioned, the bowl judgments are broken down into a 4-3 pattern. And I mentioned a good deal of those details in the first sermon, if you want to check that out, so I won't repeat all that here. But like the trumpets, um, the first four cover the earth, the sea, um, like saltwater bodies, the freshwater bodies, and then the heavenly bodies. So those are, it goes in a sequence of those four things. And if you remember in the book of Revelation, four is a symbol, is a symbolic number for kind of like you think of like the four corners of the earth or something like that. Um, it's, the four conveys this idea of the entire um, the entire created universe. So you have the four living creatures or um, elsewhere you get repetition of things stated in four, um, every tribe, language, nation, and tongue, things like that. The, the, every tribe, language, nation, and tongue would communicate everybody, right? It's stated in a couple of four. So likewise, here in the judgments, you have the earth, the sea, the waters, and the sky. To convey all of creation is being brought to bear in the judgment and is touched by the judgment. Nothing is off limits. It communicates the universality, the inescapableness of God's judgment. And so now having that bowl poured out on the earth, harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. And so here the judgments, note then, are specifically being poured out on non-believers, on unbelieving, unsaved humanity. It's specifically those who bear the mark of the beast. As we saw mark of the beast it, in the book of Revelation, this is a symbolic mark. We're not talking about some barcode or something like that. Um, or some literal tattoo people are going to get on their forehead or hands, but this is a symbolic way of saying that these people are identified with the beast, and notice they worship its image. We saw this in chapter 13, that's where we get this from, chapter 13, where we saw the beast, which is the state, um, it would have been Rome initially in their context, the Roman Empire that claims worship for, for itself. And the second beast, later identified as the, self, the false prophet in the book of Revelation, um, causes people to worship an image of the beast and to be marked with the beast uh, or marked with the, with the name or the number of the beast. And so what's interesting here is uh, one commentator suggested that even as these people are given a mark, of the beast. They're identified as those who worship the beast and are loyal to the beast. Um, again, so these are unbelievers. Um, but he, he suggested that what's, what's interesting is with this theme of retribution throughout this passage, that sort of 
uh, kind of like the Old Testament principle, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, like God is going to bring judgment that fits the crime, a punishment that fits the nature of the crime. He's going to return it on you. Um, so here in this section, we may be getting something similar to that, where as these people have borne this symbolic mark of the beast, so they will be judged with a mark, uh, namely these sores, these painful sores, which of course are very similar to the boils. Um, it's very reminiscent of the boils that were experienced as one of the plagues in the Exodus. Uh, one other comment I, I didn't mention, but I'll throw in there. I forgot to mention when talking about the mark of the beast. Again, the mark here is contrasted with the seal that is on the people of God. So the people of God are sealed symbolically as his own, the 144,000, the army of God that are sealed. And then the mark of the beast is the counterfeit seal, so to say, uh, the parody seal that the non-believer has of their loyalty to the beast. All right, the second bowl, uh, verse three, the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. So here again, very reminiscent of the Egyptian plagues, kind of playing on that theme for the purpose of the message of this passage, depicting it as an exodus or redemption of God's people uh, through the judgment of uh, their oppressors and the unrepentant. Um, so very similar to the plagues where the Nile was turned to blood. And as well, as you'll notice in the seals, you remember it was a fourth that were judged in the trumpets. We had it amped up to a third of the of the sphere uh, of of judgment receiving destruction, and now here it's every living thing that was in the sea uh, died. And so there's an amplification, there's an intensity as we move from the seal to the trumpets, and now to the bowls. All right, we come to the third angel, which says. Uh, that the in verse four, the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, and they became blood. So again, very very similar, uh, reminiscent of the Nile turning to blood. Verse five. That now though we we it says, and I heard the angel literally of the waters. Okay, so those waters that were just turned into blood, the angel as ESV kind of gives us an interpretation, the angel in charge of those waters. Now he's going to give us a comment on that judgment. And we look pretty in depth at this in the sermon, so we won't go into all the details here. But as we see, the angel is going to say that judgment was just. The angel that was in charge of the, of the waters, the rivers that were turned to blood, he says those judgments are right. That is a proper judgment. Just are you, O Holy One, who is and who was. And, and notice there, normally in the book, it, it says um, God describes himself as the one who is and who was and is to come. Here that, that phrase, and is to come, is left off. And so the idea could be that no more does God need to be described as the one who is to come because his come, he, has, he has come now. This is, this is the final judgment kind of being expressed here. So he's still the one who is, who is and who was, but who is to come, well, that's been realized. God in Christ has now returned and brought about uh, the judgment depicted here in the bowl of judgments. Okay? So it says, it continues in verse 5, for you brought these judgments. Verse 6, for they have poured out the blood of the saints and prophets. You're pouring out judgment on them because they poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets. God's people uh, spoken of elsewhere as saints and depicted elsewhere as prophets. So whether this is referring specifically to actual prophets or whether prophets here is a description of all the church, which is symbolically cast in the role of prophets. 
um, a prophetic community in that sense. And you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, the altar agrees, the altar, the place of the martyrs, is in agreement says, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. And so, again, we kind of unpacked a lot of this in the sermon, so there's not so much to add here. But one thing that is interesting is that in verse 6, you've given them blood to drink. Um, again, this fits just the imagery of the passage itself, where the rivers, the fresh water, the, the, the water that you would use for drinking, it's turned to blood. And so, uh, well, quite obviously within the symbolism, that's now the water that you've turned to blood is the water that is, the blood now is what you've given them to drink. And so that kind of fits the imagery. But what's interesting is that we do have this theme elsewhere in the book of sort of the harlots or or these other figures. It may just be the harlot. I know the harlot. Maybe it'll be other figures as well. But there's this imagery of of them drinking the blood of the saints or being drunk on uh, this sort of passionate uh, immorality and sin. And so, again, here we have, you've given them the blood to drink. So now what you've drunk and you've thought was good and you've carried out um, now is being returned upon your head and God is causing you to drink his judgment. Um, and so, for example, chapter 17, verse 6, and I saw the woman, this is the prostitute, this is the city Babylon, the harlots, uh, the world system of economic exploitation and such. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So she there, she's drinking the blood of the saints, just as it says it would allude to here. Now she's been given the blood to drink. And elsewhere, it's going to talk about being given the cup to drink uh, later in chapter 16, which of course is reminiscent of the Old Testament where God talks, speaks to rebellious Israel and says that I'm going to, you're going to give, be given a cup of staggering. You're going to be drunk with my judgment. It's going to cause, like a drunk person would stagger. So I'm going to cause you to drink my judgment to the point of being drunk with it and staggering. And this is what Jesus is alluding to when he uh, in the Garden of Gethsemane is saying, God, may this cup pass from me, that he would bear that judgment in our place. And so here, those who are not under uh, Christ's atonement are given the cup of, of judgment to drink. They have been given blood to drink. It is what they deserve. All right, the fourth angel, verse 8, poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched with or by the fierce heat and uh so here the sun is uh, the judgment is poured out on the sun and so their sun it seems that the sun is kind of being affected with within the imagery at least being affected such that the sun is scorching people with fire fire elsewhere in the book is is a picture of judgment so fire comes from the two witnesses mouths like their mouth is issuing forth a judgment they're speaking uh they're they're condemning people in their unrepentance and so here fire again is being used as a picture of judgment and then it says, and they cursed the name of God. And literally, I, I, I'm not entirely sure why the ESV chose the translation curse here, because uh, this is the same word used in chapter 13 and chapter 17 in describing the beast as one who was full of blasphemous names and would blaspheme God. And so here they are taking on the characteristic of the one that they worship. They're the ones who are marked by, are marked with the 
the, the name of the beast, they had the mark of the beast, and they worshipped its image, and now the one that they worship, they are becoming like the one they adore. Uh, we become like the things we emulate. We we emulate or the things we we emulate the things that we admire and the things that we adore and the things that we value. And so they are doing that as well. They are taking on the characteristic of the beast, and now they blaspheme God just like the beast is a blasphemer of God. And so they they uh, and they cursed the name of God. And God is the one who had power over these plagues, making it explicit. These plagues are not some of the judgment of God is just sort of these. Things that happen by sort of a natural course of events and natural law that exists outside of God's power and his hands are tied behind his back and he would really rather not be pouring out these judgments if he could. Now, of course, in a sense, God does not delight in the death of the wicked, as uh, scripture says. Yet, these are judgments that God does issue forth as a satisfaction of his justice and his wrath. And so these are these are things that God has power over. And, of course, then it says that the sinful humanity did not repent or give God glory. So they are obstinate in their rebellion, which only further, you know, in the face of these judgments that in the case of the trumpets were intended to serve, cast as as saying these are meant to serve as warnings to get you to repent, sinful humanity is not getting the message. Um, when we are judged in our in our depraved state, we experience God's wrath, we simply get further hardened in our rebellion against God. Rather than having our hearts softened to realize that we deserve such things, we, uh, we, we spite God and we get angry with God for giving us the very things that we deserve, only making us more condemnable, of course, because we are further hardened in our rebellion against him. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. Okay, so darkness, again, reminiscent of the Egyptian, the plague on the Egyptians of darkness. And here, now we've gone through the first four bowls, which again were the earth, the, 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 the waters, the, or the sea, the rivers, and the sun. Now in the, the next three, which are set off in each of the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments, like the trumpets, it's sort of set off as these are judge, judgments now on the realm of the wicked. And so here it's a judgment specifically on the throne of the beast. Um, and so we saw in chapter 13 that the beast, that the dragon Satan gives the beast a throne and the beast is one who has authority. And so here, this is a judgment on the authority of the beast. The beast's authority is being challenged. It's being maybe taken away. The idea is, um, the, his kingdom is going to come to an end in other words. And, uh, people nod their tongues. They bit their tongues in anguish just out of so much pain from from these plagues and again they cursed or they blasphemed the god of heaven for their pain and their sores they did not repent of their deeds just like pharaoh getting his plagues he continued to harden his heart and would not let the people go so sinful humanity refuses to repent in the face of god's uh, final exodus plague judgments all right so the sixth angel in verse 12 now poured out the uh, his bowl the sixth bowl and he poured it out on the great river Euphrates, and its water dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And so this is parallel to the sixth trumpet, where in the sixth trumpet we also get mention of uh, the river Euphrates and this army that seems to be associated with coming from that geographic region, this place to the east. 
Um, and so likewise, as we'll see here, this is an image. We're going to get image of kind of a battle, a gathering for a great battle. Uh, so that was the same imagery that was happening in the trumpet, the sixth trumpet judgment of an army coming from uh, east of the Euphrates um, for destruction. And so we got two parallel images of a battle. Here um, we have what is likely this kind of idea of uh, it says the ESV says the kings from the east. It's literally, literally, literally the kings from the rise, the place of the sun, the rising of the sun, which of course would be the east. This is likely drawing upon sort of fears at the time uh, within the Roman Empire of Euphrates. I believe was would kind of have created the uh, the eastern border, and then the empires of the nations beyond that, specifically like the Parthians. There was some fear at the time of of them invading and attacking Rome and there had been some attacks here and there and so kind of like if you were to say something in the in the 1980s in America about fears about Soviet Russia the Soviet Union and stuff it kind of conjured up like cold war fears there's just kind of this um, constant tension and constant worry about what might happen um, that would be sort of a similar idea here that he's conjuring up those that 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 background sort of fear about invading armies coming for destruction, and so the drying up of the Euphrates is kind of like a a parody of the Exodus as God's people went through uh, the the Red Sea to escape the Egyptians again more Exodus themes and then that event was repeated at the Jordan where they God kind of dries out the Jordan so that they can cross over to take the land. So now the army that's coming for for Babylon um, uh, is, 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 is able to cross the Euphrates as it's dried up and it prepares the way for this army to come through. Uh, continuing on, and I saw coming out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs. So again, frogs reminiscent of the Egyptian plague of frogs. And we have sort of the anti-trinity here where we have uh, the beast and the dragon um, and the false prophet. And so again, kind of this parody, this anti-trinity, uh, this unholy trinity. Um, these are the three characters, the, the dragon and his two minions. And they are gathering an army, um, as we'll see. And from the mouth comes this frog. Now, first of all, the frog would have been seen as an unclean, it was an unclean animal according to the Old Testament. And so the frog then in verse 14 represents, for they are demonic spirits. Just like in the Gospels, demons are referred to as unclean spirits. So the frog here is a symbol of demons, the, 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 the operation of demons to gather and deceive, um, to deceive and thereby gather an army. And it comes from the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. In each case, it repeats mouth three times, which when things proceed from mouths in the book of Revelation, it is typically symbolic of communication. And so it's, it's the beast and the dragon and the false prophet's ability to deceive by speech, by false teaching, false ideas, ideology, and to gather a people in rebellion against God. So verse 14, they are demonic spirits performing signs, uh, going abroad to the kings of the, the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God, the all mighty and this is a phrase that's used elsewhere in the book the the great day the battle of the great day of the almighty of god we get 
Um, what's interesting is in as much as we have sort of repetition throughout the book where different cycles of judgment are repeated, we also have repetition of a great battle in many of these sets of visions. And so the first one, for example, in the seal judgments, in the sixth seal, we have mention of uh, kind of in preparation for the final judgment, uh, sinful humanity is cowering and wanting the rocks to fall on them as they see the lamb approaching. But it mentions these kings and these folks who would uh, potentially be associated with an army. So there it's not explicitly said that there's a battle or an army, but it's at least interesting to note when we'll eventually observe some of these other uh, occasions. And so in the trumpets, as I've already mentioned, the, the sixth trumpet, we have a battle scene. And there it is a outside army coming to defeat uh, to, to defeat the enemies of God's people. And so, like in that case, it would have been, you know, kind of the idea of Rome being sacked by these outside armies. Um, and so there it's, the armies are really an agent of God's judgment. They're coming to destroy uh, those who are rebelling against God. All right, we have here, now we have the bowl, the sixth bowl. Notice how each of these, it's the sixth. It's the one that comes right before the very end. So this army battle imagery is kind of a great picture um, for kind of the, the final destruction or the final moment of sinful humanity's rebellion. Okay, but here in the sixth bowl, we have uh, mention of these kings from the east being gathered, and that likely conjures up, again, the idea of an invasion. But then there's mention of the kings of the world, and maybe it's the same group, or maybe these kings of the, like, maybe those are all, these kings of the world is just another way of describing the kings from the east. Now it's just kind of been universalized, or maybe it's a different group. Um, it's a little bit more, this is the one passage that's a little bit more vague about what's going on. Are these people, is the focus here that um, God is bringing a, an army that's going to judge, like he's going to use an army to judge people by destroying them? Or is this an army that's gathering to to actually, in some way, uh, try to level a attack against the lamb himself and fight the lamb? Either way, there's this there's this image of, of great deception occurring and gathering people together uh, for this great end time uh, battle, which continues, of course, in verse uh, 16, which I can read for us as well. Uh, and they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Okay, so kind of getting the full picture here. So we've seen the seal, we see the trumpet, we see the bull. Uh, in chapter 17, we're also going to get a battle uh, sort of idea where the, let's see there in chapter 17, let me just read that. 17, um, Verse 16, then the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. And so here we see this would be more of an image of the kings of the world coming and destroying Babylon. The the economic system of the Roman Empire would probably be like the first kind of expression of this. Um, and so there again, the battle is an agent of the destruction of God's enemies. We'll eventually have a, a battle again described in 19, where the nations of the world are gathering together to fight the lamb. And this, of course, is where Christ returns on a white horse and, and a sword comes from his mouth to issue a word of judgment to destroy them. At the end of 20, um, 20, or the, at 20 verse 7 and falling, at the end of the millennium passage, where we get a picture of God's people vindicated and reigning. 
Currently, at the end of that section, there is again talk about Satan deceiving the nations, very similar language to here in the bowl judgment where there is deception to gather people together for this battle. And there, the battle is specifically Satan kind of bringing people together to attack the camp of the saints. Okay, so in each of these, there's there's ba- there's different battle imagery that kind of concludes um, that is met, that kind of is associated with the end. And so in the seal judgment between the sixth and the seventh, you know, that's associated with the end, the final judgment. The same with the trumpet, the sixth trumpet, the sixth bowl, uh, chapter seventeen, which is a it has its initial reference, of course, in Rome, but eventually is anticipating the final collapse of the world, the world system. Chapter 19, the return of Christ. Chapter 20, uh, the second half, the close of the millennium being the close of this age leading into the rebellion that Satan will lead. There's just kind of this final battle image repeated in all of these. And again, these are all parallel. They're all kind of pictures of the same essential course of events. And there's different features. At times, as we've said, it can be that um, God is using, there's a picture of God using an army to destroy people. Or it could be that the army is gathering to try to destroy God's people, like in chapter 20. Or it could be uh, that the people, the rebels of humankind are gathering to revolt against God and his anointed uh, to battle the lamb specifically, kind of like a Psalm 2 idea. Anyways, just to kind of give you a survey that this is a theme we see throughout the book of, of, of as these sequences of events are occurring, they close with kind of this picture of a battle which is a great picture to exemplify human rebellion, um, warring against God, being destroyed in, in a great slaughter of a battle, warring against God's people whom he will ultimately protect, etc. Slotted in between this section, um, so kind of like how in uh, chapter 16, 5 through 7, we get this moment of of like poetry is just kind of like plopped in the midst of this uh, section of judgment. Well, anytime you get kind of a uh, a shift in genre, a shift in writing style, that should kind of draw our attention, and we we know okay, look, something important is going on here. So likewise, in the the sixth bowl, in the middle of this description of an army being gathered, an Armageddon, and this battle sequence, and all this stuff, we get this. We get verse 15, which is just kind of like plopped in the middle. And the ESV puts it in parentheses to kind of say like, hey, this is a little bit like this is, it fits in here kind of oddly. Like it it, it kind of breaks the flow of thought. And either it, either you could take it as kind of like, it's just meant, therefore it's just meant to be an aside. Like it's not terribly important. It's just kind of like you can kind of skip over it and it's there. And so obviously pay attention to it, but it's not the main point of what's going on here. Um, so you can kind of take it parenthetical in that way. Or what I think is better is that the reason it's plopped in here so awkwardly is because it actually is trying to grab our attention. It's trying to say this is probably one of the main points. Like this is where I'm plopping it in here awkwardly and kind of like in, a, in, a, in an attention grabbing way for the point of grabbing your attention and showing you like get this. And so verse 15, behold, I, Jesus speaking here, I am coming like a thief. Okay, this is imagery that's used elsewhere in the New Testament. Jesus uses this language in the Gospels to talk about his coming. First um, Thessalonians 5, 1 Peter 3 also pick up on this language that Jesus himself used to talk about Jesus coming like a thief. The idea is it's unexpected. A thief doesn't 
if someone's breaking into your house, they don't send you a notice the week before so you can put it in your calendar, right? It's unexpected. It's going to come. Uh, you need to be prepared for it. So blessed, therefore, this is this is one of the seven blessings of the book. Seven times there's a blessing statement. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. The idea here is to be prepared for Christ's coming, not to fall prey to the deception uh, that was just spoken about in the earlier verses. All right, and we come to the final bowl here in verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne. Again, this is language used elsewhere to refer to God himself speaking, a loud voice from the temple, from the throne that's located in the heavenly temple, saying, it is done. And we get one other time where this phrase is used, this declaration, it is done, and it occurs in chapter 21, verse 6 with reference to the new creation and uh, after the great white throne judgment and all things have been made new, sin is no more. And so here this is again, the, sev the seven, uh, the seventh bowl, the seventh trumpet, the seventh seal, these are all, the seven is meant to kind of be, this is the end. This is when everything comes to uh, the God's full kingdom, his judgment all comes about. Verse 18, and there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. Reminiscent here of the Sinai, well, one of more plagues from, from the book of Exodus of, of, uh, of we're going to see hail and, and lightning and such, but very seems very similar to kind of Exodus 19, where is this terrifying image of God's presence at Mount Sinai. Verse 19, and the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the fury of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Um, and so Babylon the great, this great city, this image that in chapter 11 could be used to kind of describe Jerusalem, but elsewhere is more typically associated with Rome in their context, but would be any sort of great empire. Um, again, the, the harlot in chapter 17 is going to be described as the Babylon, uh, this economic system of Rome or any other uh, empire in the course of world history. It is now fallen. The great city is split into three parts. It's destroyed. And not just that city, but it's meant to be seen as universal because the cities of the nations fall. God is not forgetting their sins. He's going to bring their sins to account on them. He's going to make them drink the cup as we already saw. And here it's the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. Wine in the book of Revelation, this idea of a wine press from chapter 14 is an image of God's judgment, stamping, stomping out on the grapes as a picture of, of blood being splattered in God's great wrath. Verse 20, and every island fled away and no mountains were to be found. And again, this is pretty typical of apocalyptic literature where the where the uh, end is associated with sort of the the even the cosmic order the the natural order responding to God's coming and things kind of being removed and and just the, the greatness of the coming of God brings about tremendous changes even to the natural order which makes sense with the new creation is going to come the dissolution of this first order of creation we get image of this elsewhere in the book as well. So, for example, the sixth seal, we see, uh, like in the Old Testament prophets, we see creation responding to the impending judgment of God. So, chapter 6, verse 14, 
the sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Or I have marked here chapter 20, verse 11. Uh, chapter 20, verse 11. This is the great white throne judgment. Then I saw a great white throne and him who is seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And great hailstones like the, like the plagues in Egypt, about 100 pound hailstones, each fell from heaven on people. And they, they cursed, again, the word blasphemed God for the plagues of hell because the plagues were so severe. All right, and that brings us to the end. Um, as we've surveyed this passage, um, hopefully giving you some more, a greater understanding of this passage in this text, um, I look forward to meeting with you all on Sunday as we hit then the second um, part of, of, in terms of a sermon for this passage. And again, all of this is meant to come to bear. All of these details are meant to come to bear to impress upon us the greatness of God's holiness, the greatness of his wrath towards sin, and as those who have found redemption in Christ, as Revelation chapter 5 says, that we've been a people that have been redeemed from the earth. We are people who have been saved from this wrath. Um, we won't taste the sweetness of the gospel if we haven't um, fully appreciated the severity of God's wrath from which we are saved. And so I look forward again to seeing you on Sunday and hopefully we can come with an even greater understanding of this passage so that we can apply it to our hearts with more intensity.